Hey everyone and welcome back to Motherkind, the show that is going to help you navigate motherhood and life with more joy, clarity and purpose. I believe motherhood is an invitation for more emotional awareness, for healing and for becoming more and more of who you really are. And my hope is that this podcast and the incredible conversations we have will help you to do that. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn, and feel inspired. And if you love the podcast, can you do me a favor and hit subscribe? It really does help. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. It's with Laura Belbin. You might know her as Knee Deep in Life, where on social media, she has over one and a half million followers and her first book called Knee Deep in Life was a Sunday Times bestseller. I didn't know Laura before the chat. I was sent her book, her new book, which is called No Shame, How to Drop the Guilt from Someone Who's Learned the Effing Hard Way. I was in with that title, obviously, and I read it and I knew that I had to have her on the podcast. This is a brilliant episode. It is about resilience, strength, and healing. I took so much from it, and I hope you do too. There is a trigger warning on this episode. We talk in detail about a mental health breakdown, about sexual abuse and trauma. So please be cautious and be mindful with your own limits. There is also some swearing in case little ears are around. Here's the episode. I hope you love it. Oh, Laura, I'm so excited. We've just been having a gorgeous chat before we hit record. I finished your book last night, your new book. And I mean this when I say the courage that it takes to stand into a truth. I always feel almost like indebted gratitude to that person because you are unconsciously giving and consciously giving the rest of us permission to stand into our own truth. So I feel like it's such a brave book and we're going to get into your story. But first up, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So I guess let's start at the start. Tell us what happened in 2021 and what led you to be sat here today. So I think a lot of people in 2021, especially like the January time, were struggling. It was horrific. We were all in lockdown. And, you know, I think that lockdown felt massively different to the first one. The first one, the sun was beautiful. We could be in the garden. It was hard. Don't get me wrong. You know, we had our kids home with us all the time. And I'm no home learner. I'm really not. But roll on to January and it felt really bleak. My husband, Steve, he was going to work. And I was just at home with the kids all the time. And I really lost this sense of routine of why what am I doing and my youngest child Toby he was really struggling with sleep so battling trying to get him to bed having been with him from the moment he woke up and it was like 10 o'clock at night and he wouldn't go to sleep then I was getting phone calls from the school like what kind of home learning are you doing with him and he was in year R the pressure to be at home with two children and trying to educate both of them who are vastly different in age you know they were 10 and 5 So their learning journeys were so, so different. And having to try and support that felt so overwhelming. And I felt trapped. I think a lot of people felt trapped. I felt really, really, really trapped. And I went to the doctors because I'd had stomach pains. And while I was sat in the car waiting to go into the doctor, I was crying. And it was like all of a sudden I couldn't even stem how emotional I felt all the time. And I went into the doctors and I said, look, I'm not okay. I think I need some antidepressants. And when I'd had uh, Toby, my youngest, back in 2015, I was put on Citalopram. And I said, you know what? Give it to me again. I think I need it. 
And at that time, I was completely unaware of the fact that I suffer with PTSD. And starting to take the antidepressants triggered a very traumatic, I guess, time in my life where I was remembering a lot of the stuff subconsciously, I think, really, of when I'd had Toby and how bad things were and how I'd struggled with the antidepressants, with the side effects. And I went from being the woman that was crying and just wasn't enjoying life and was struggling to just, I couldn't even get out of bed and I wasn't sleeping. I can't even explain the level of exhaustion that I felt. Even being out of bed, I felt sick. Like I felt ill. I couldn't hold myself. I couldn't stay out of bed long enough before needing to go back to bed. And then over that, the course of like sort of four days, I just went rapidly downhill. And then it was a Sunday evening. It was the last weekend in January. And I'd been on the phone to 111. I'd been on the phone to my doctor's surgery. I'd, been, I'd spoken to mental health nurses. I'd spoken to the crisis team. And, you know, I was being shunted from one sleeping tablet to an anxiety medication while being told you must stay on the antidepressants even though this triggering impact that I was having was terrifying and it got to about 11 o'clock on the Sunday evening and I came downstairs to see having taken this anti-anxiety medication that was meant to have worked and made me sleep and I slept about an hour and I said to Steve I said I'm, I'm going to kill myself and I think in that moment I realized now I didn't want to kill myself, but I was that desperate that I said, this is it. And I can honestly say that I felt suicidal in the past when I've had poor mental health, but this was real. This was like, I can't actually imagine breathing for another minute like this. It's hell. I don't care if someone puts me to sleep for six months. I just can't do this anymore. And I ended up calling 999 and saying I was going to take all of the pills in the house. Uh, Very reluctantly. Very, very, very reluctantly, they did send an ambulance out to me that arrived, I think, around seven hours later. And they basically said, look, there's nothing we can do for you. Just keep taking your antidepressants and keep pushing through. And I said, I can't do that. And they did take me to hospital, but it was purely based on the fact that I had a heart murmur, that I had an irregular heartbeat. So I was admitted to hospital and nobody really at any point treated me for the root cause. It was your heart's fine. And I remember the A&E doctor saying to me, everything in the world feels very out of control at the moment. And so that makes it scary, but you'll be fine. And I was told to go home and call my GP. So I was discharged. You know, I'd been poked and prodded by needles. I'd had ECG machines, everything. And I hadn't slept, I don't know, properly in like 72 hours. I was just so exhausted and I couldn't sleep because I was suffering from the most horrific form of fight or flight. And I was just absolutely terrified. My cortisol levels were through the roof. And so everything just went kind of downhill from there. Steve had to take a period of time of sick from work to care for me and the kids. I have recently looked back at my doctor's notes of the day I was discharged from hospital and the phone call that my doctor's surgery did and it said severe. Now, considering the fact I threatened to take my life, you know, I couldn't have made it more blunter that I was in crisis. And it said severe anxiety, mental health care plan agreed, no follow up needed. Now, I can tell you that there was no mental health care plan put in place, and there absolutely should have been. 
some type of care plan put in place for me. Because I've been taken to hospital in crisis, my children were going to need to be under the care of social services, which unfortunately for my kids, because they definitely needed the support, social services never actually called to check in to see how we were doing. And so it was just a real shit show, to be honest, that period of time in my life. I look back now and I don't know how I survived. I really have no idea because there was no form of real support put in place and I had to fight continually. And it wasn't until I found my now psychologist that I'm with that I began to properly heal. And that was, you know, through the the luck of a friend who's also a psychologist that said to me, I'm telling you now, the person that you are currently seeing for therapy is shit, is not providing the right level of support for your trauma and is unpacking everything that you're going through and everything you're feeling way too fast. And it was making me worse. I wasn't leaving the house anymore. I mean, I was probably what you would consider agoraphobic. I was absolutely terrified to leave the house and I just stopped existing. I've never, ever hit rock bottom like that in my life. And it was terrifying. Like there's no other way to describe it other than terrifying. And to now, to where I'm sat, I have survived. I am, like I said, I'm still in therapy. I'm doing EMDR. And I have had to put more work into myself in the last 18 to 20 months than I've ever had to do in my entire life. And it purely comes down to the fact that if I don't do this and continue to work as hard as I am and continue to work as hard as I am, then I know that I will have another mental health crisis because... Unfortunately, I am a person living with trauma, PTSD, and trying to manage all of that and also trying to shake that level of shame that I think I've carried all of my life for everything I've struggled with, really. Thank you for sharing that so bravely. That was a bit intense, wasn't it? Christ, you asked me one question, 10 minutes later, I'm still rambling on. (laughs) Well, I wanted you to share all of that because I think it's so important you know, because you have this public profile, which is about making people laugh, I think it's particularly poignant that we have to remember, we have no idea what people are are really struggling with and going through. And I think, you know, it unlocks so much compassion for me. And, you know, and I haven't had that experience directly myself, but I've had a family member really close to me go through the same. And I remember thinking the same, like, where is the support here? Like there was just no support for us as a family. It was only until something really intense happened and there was a section because the police had to get involved. I just remember thinking this is just heartbreaking, the state of mental health support in this country. I really want to dive in because I think that the message of hope and healing in your book is really powerful. Your courage to dive into the root cause of all of this. And we were just sharing a bit before we started. And you say in the book, we can't escape the things that we struggle with. And you and I both did the same thing. I ran, you know, not actually, I hate running, but, you know, I kept busy and I would drink and I would shop and I would date all through my 20s, essentially, just to avoid the discomfort. Do you mind sharing what you've learned about what you were running from and how having the massive courage to sit and face it has unlocked your healing? It's weird. I've kind of spoken about this recently because I'm still weirdly in this process, which I'm having to learn through, of waiting for permission for someone to tell me I'm allowed to talk about it and it not just be in the book. But I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and I very bravely kind of say that now through a lot of therapy. And I have run away 
And I think that's such a perfect description of what you've just said. I have run away from the reality of how traumatising that was to grow up with. And I want to make it abundantly clear, because I do make it abundantly clear in my book, that it was not through a family member. Because I think that when you say childhood sexual abuse, the first thing that you link to is family. If it wasn't for my family, I don't think I would have made it past my teen years before I would have committed suicide. So I have tried to not allow it to be the thing that defined me. And I think the issue with it is that I didn't want to be defined by it because I didn't want to be the person that had to hold her hand up and say, but I was sexually abused as a child because the reality is I don't want that to be the thing that bothers me. I don't want it to be the thing that I have to live with. I don't want to be the person that's plagued by it because other people manage. And that real self-comparison has kicked in for me. And I've had to work really hard at saying, but your journey is valid. And what you have been through is hard. You don't need to compare it to, but that person's had it harder. So they deserve to have the space, the time, the energy, the voice. And when I started writing this book, it wasn't part of the the memo. I, I wasn't writing about this. And my sub-editor, Sarah, we spoke for hours and hours and on end on so many occasions. And I remember her calling me and saying, you know what, there's something here and I don't know what it is, but you're holding back and I can tell that you're holding back. And all I want you to do is I just want you to get it all out on paper. It doesn't have to make any sense. It doesn't have to relate to the subject matter. Just get it out. And I I kind of was like, but that's not what I need to talk about. But no, well, it's not that, though. I don't want to make it about that. And then I thought, just fuck it. And I just bleh, and I just got it all out on paper. And it was that first chapter of the book where I go, right, I just need to say this because I'm entitled to be able to speak about this. I have worked really hard and I do not want to carry the shame and the ridicule and the embarrassment of being the person who survived that. And so that was a real process for me. And I think that being able to just sit there and put my hand on my heart and say, this hurts and this has had a detrimental impact on every single part of my life, from trusting men to being, you know, desperate to be somebody that I just couldn't physically be because that part of my brain that is desperate to protect me was going, whoa, stop. No, we're going to get hurt. We need to be careful. We've done this before. We can't go down this road. It's too dangerous. While also kind of living out this idea of like wanting to be really dangerous and wanting to just, you know, rebel because there was such a conflicting feeling inside my body of just wanting to be angry and then knowing I shouldn't be angry and I should just be lucky and I should be thankful. And, you know, I've got enough things to focus on. And I think that last year I remember going to therapy and saying, you know, oh, well, you know, it was like this very nonchalant, oh, and I was sexually abused as a child, but that's not a big deal anymore. And, you know, my therapist was probably like, okay, yeah, sure. That's not a big deal. And I remember her, I was constantly bringing up different things of like, I think it's this. I think this is the reason why. She was like, right, okay. And I can remember it really clearly. And she said, when else in your life have you felt out of control, scared, and like you just don't have any control over you as a person? And I was like, it was then. She said, and that's what we need to work on. It was a real defining moment and I've not forgotten it because it hurts so much. And I remember crying my eyes out and going, but I don't want to go there. 
And as she quite rightly pointed out, but you're already living with it day to day. So why don't we kind of address it? And it's been liberating, devastating. It's just been everything. It's been everything because I've realised that I've run away from it for 30, well, you know, well over 30 years of my life. And I didn't deserve to. I didn't deserve to be the one that had to hide in the shadows and act like the person that wasn't traumatised by the things that happened to her. And now I am learning to know that, like, right now, I can talk about it. I have permission. And I really want that message to get across to anybody. I know that the word survivor is quite complex for some people who are survivor of any form of abuse because they can maybe not like the word survivor. I don't like the word victim because that doesn't define me. So for me, it's a very personal thing. I prefer to say that I survived it because there have been moments quite literally through my life where I've survived by the skin of my teeth. So I am continuing to survive the trauma of what I went through. And I want that to really be a message that is conveyed to anybody on any point in their journey of whatever they're going through, that it's not this real linear process where we just get better and we get fixed. I think that it will continue to be a process where we learn, we grow, we accept. And above all else, we really put in a lot of effort, time and energy to loving ourselves And that self-compassion is so much more powerful than I think any of us could ever begin to acknowledge. It's hugely important. I totally agree. And I think the annoying thing is, annoying is not the right word, it needs a way stronger word, that trauma blocks self-compassion. So the people in the world who need the most self-compassion, like trauma survivors like you, are also the least likely to give it to themselves. And it's just so painful that and it's so I just wish it weren't that way I wish it weren't that way and I think you're so brave because shame breeds doesn't it shame breeds in secrecy and when you bring something out into the light like you have so bravely with this book you know it's so healing what else have you learned about shame I continue to learn so much about it I see it on so many different levels I think it's not been until I've really sat and looked at it and and understood and continue. I mean, do we ever really understand shame? You can understand the basis level of it, but shame is so different for every single person. And I think that's why it's such a complex issue. You can't ever really understand the true complexity of it unless you physically sit with each individual person and understand what shame feels like for them, where it shows up in their body, how it represents itself within the limitations you kind of put within your life, you know. And I think that shame and mental health is quite interlinked. And people that suffer with anxiety, there's a lot of shame around that. You know, how I look, I'm paranoid about the fact that that person might have said that about me in so many different ways. And for me, it's that feeling of inadequacy. It's that feeling of I'm not good enough. I've not worked hard enough. Look at her. Oh my God, I'm a freak. I'm a weirdo. And a massive thing that I've really had to work on the last 18 months is, but if only people knew who I really was. Oh yeah, I know that one. That is really, really, really common. That one. I think that's the reason a lot of people don't go to therapy apart from, you know, the accessibility, which is a whole other conversation, but this feeling of if that person really, really knew these dark thoughts and feelings that I had no one would like me. I remember when I first started on my healing journey, I genuinely thought 
that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. <laughs> hey, me too. <laughs> Genuinely thought that, that I was wrong. Like I, I thought that. It's crazy looking back now that I thought that. And I remember it took so much courage, doesn't it, to start to share some of the darkest things and then to have someone like your brilliant therapist. And for me, it was a sponsor in, in a recovery group just say, yeah, like me too. And what else you got? That's it. If that's the worst you have, it's going to take a lot more work to shock me. And I, I can't even remember my therapist saying that to me of going, okay, well, you know, that's not the worst that I've heard or, you know what, you're going to have to try a lot harder. And I really think that the shame that we live with, it limits us. And no, we can't ever completely get rid of it. We just can't. It's so impossible to do, but we can certainly kind of pinpoint it. And I know that I've been able to pinpoint it in my own personal life of being like, okay, well, I feel ashamed. I feel ashamed of the fact that I'm maybe not as accomplished as they are. Or I feel ashamed of the fact that I am the person that's having to live with mental health issues. And then trying to navigate, like, how do I manage that as a person with a profile? I want to get the wording right. What if I don't get the wording right? And then being ashamed of the fact that I said the wrong thing and it doesn't represent all people. Like I said, the word survivor is quite loaded because there's a lot of people that are trauma survivors. <laughs> I've used the word and they don't like the word survivor. And I personally prefer to use that and other people would prefer to use the word victim. So it's really hard to kind of manage a conversation that is so individual and nobody can really understand how individual it is until you do sit down with that person and kind of get to the bottom of it. And let's be honest with you, that process is in therapy and that's where you tend to uncover a lot of the issues. And I genuinely thought right up until I started seeing my psychologist that I had some type of severe mental health disorder like bipolar. And the thing is that it wouldn't have been a million miles off for me to have potentially developed that kind of disorder because of what I have been through. We always kind of throw around these labels of, well, she's bipolar. And in actual fact, there are a lot of reasons why these mental health conditions are there. And it's because of trauma. There is obviously the nature nurture side of it. But traumatic experiences change the way that our brains work. And like I've learned and come to accept the fact that I do have a very strong tendency to disassociate from many parts of life. And it's only been through my journey through therapy that I've actually learned that and gone, right, okay. So in actual fact, I don't really feel very much about anything when I recall it, other than the birth of my two kids. I don't have a huge feeling of anything other than numbness when I recall memories. Even the day I got married, I don't have a feeling. And I remember to begin with, you know, my therapist, she wanted to establish where my disassociative behavior was, whether it was severe or whether it was actually very mild. I lied. You know, she was asking me these questions. She said, you actually rank quite low. And <laughs> I've said to her more recently, I mean, I lied. And she was like, I know. <laughs> That's it. That's it. It's all part of it, isn't it? Because obviously when we arrive at the doors of wanting to do that healing and that deep work, we still bring those protective behaviors with us until we know we can fully trust that person, right? It's like, of course I'm going to lie a bit because the alarm bells are going off. The trauma response is going off with the intimacy. Because for me, a lot of my stuff comes up in intimacy. That's when I tend to 
dissociate because I don't feel safe in that space. It's just so powerful to hear you because your journey has been so condensed as I'm understanding it. You know, it's breakdown to the healing. Can you talk about EDMR? Because lots of people ask me about that. Can you share your experience of it and how it's worked for you? So EMDR is quite commonly used with people that suffer with PTSD. Any kind of like traumatic event situation, that's what EMDR is very good at. It's quite new. You know, it's not been on the market as long as things like talking therapy. But the process of EMDR is that basically, for me personally, because I know that there are also different ways in which you practice EMDR, so I can only go through the routine that I've done. And it's through tapping. So you are told to close your eyes think of an experience you know and you're working on different areas of your life you've got to walk yourself back to okay what's the youngest memory you have of something traumatic now for my youngest memory will always be the fact that I you know of of the sexual abuse always goes back to that being the youngest point of being the most traumatized so you think I'm all the way back there I was traumatized. So then that trauma continues to play out in other avenues of your life. And then the trauma grows into different parts because obviously we all survive trauma. We all go through trauma to different degrees. But if you're severely traumatized, that then changes the way we deal with trauma and how we cope with trauma. So you walk yourself back. You then close your eyes to the memory, which is obviously not pleasant. Whatever that memory is that comes up and then you have to rate it out of 10, 10 being the worst, one being actually it's not that bad. And then once you've established how traumatic it is, you then make your hands into like a butterfly and you tap fast below your collarbone, not too fast, but very deliberately so you can feel each tap. And then everything that's coming up in that moment, you then stop, you take a breath, you relay whatever it is that's going on in that moment, whatever it is you're feeling, you know, there's no right or wrong in this process. You close your eyes again and you do it. It's very, very intense and it's really hard. And there have been points where I have just sobbed or I have been like squirming in my seat because I can't keep still or I've been stamping my feet on the floor or screwing my face up or like, I can't do this. So it's not for the faint hearted. And, you know, my therapist did say, she said, you did choose to go down the route of the least easiest therapy. And I said, well, you know what? I'm all or nothing, babe. So, you know, of course, and but it's because it does show and have very effective results in reducing the level of trauma that we hold in our bodies after traumatic experiences. So for me, it's worked really well. I'm really pleased I went on that journey. And as you have already touched on, the accessibility to therapy in our country is diabolical and they do EMDR on iTalk, but it's not as openly dished out as CBT. I find it frustrating because it's something that I really passionately talk about while also knowing that it's actually not that simple to access that. And so it's very much a wanting to convey the message of importance that you don't necessarily have to enter into therapy to start working on yourself. And you can sign up to things like iTalk or your local charities that also offer talking therapies while working on yourself and know that when that therapy comes along, it will be there. It might just not be there as readily or as quickly as if you pay privately. And I am a a private paying patient. So I do understand my privilege. And I also share the frustration that many people around the country have over how 
utterly under-resourced our NHSs for mental health services. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash motherkind. You're right. It's so frustrating because often on the podcast, I, I think I do a really good job of encouraging mothers to have that courage to look at the root cause of things because I think ultimately it makes us the parents that we want to be. Like you're saying, you know, I think, and people like you talk about it, you know, and, and I have all these amazing doctors and experts come on and talk about it. But then there's this other side of it, which is like, great, okay, I'm in, I'm willing, I get it. And then there's just this sort of void. As you said, unless you have the privilege of being able to pay. And I grapple with that a lot, to be honest with you. I really do. You know, on the podcast, I talk about this week in, week out, the importance of us getting the support, looking at our stuff, healing, because trauma does go down the generations. Like it's a fact bit and it's a heartbreaking fact, but it's a fact. But it's, yeah, it's like this other side that's just this void. I mean, I talk about recovery groups a bit because that's been a big part of my journey. 12 step recovery groups, it's also free, but they're not trauma informed. So you're not going to get your, they don't do trauma healing in there. So yeah, I totally, totally share that conflict of wanting to talk about this stuff and how important it is. And yeah, it's just not available for everyone in the way that it should be. Yeah. And I guess that there's been a period of time where I felt guilt as well, because I think when you have gone through something as awful as you have, as I have, and you know, as you have as well, when you go through something really traumatic and then you have to go through the process of healing from that trauma, for me, I have felt this overwhelming need, urge, want for people to understand that they are not alone. And I think that that's probably why I am so passionate about talking about my mental health and the journey that it's been on because I know that I am the voice of one person versus millions and that is the sad scary horrific reality it is millions of people who are living through many different atrocious things and being traumatized by that so I want people to know I don't want them to feel stuck. I don't want them to feel trapped. I don't want them to feel like that they have got nowhere to turn or that there is no other option because there are so many things that you can do for yourself out there. But there is no denying the fact without a good therapist, it makes it harder. There is no denying the fact that you have to go through that process alone and having to work out your own validation while not knowing whether that validation is right or not. And, you know, I can, having had somebody, and he's okay with me talking about it, my husband, Steve, he literally returns to work today from six months off work from a mental health, I'd say, breakdown, really. And he really resisted the idea of therapy. And I don't know whether it's because of the fact that I was in therapy that I was able to offer him some of the insights around what I was going through and just validating him and saying, but it's okay that you feel that way. And you know what? Ordering him a couple of books 
he's resisted every single step of the way of going into therapy. And he's now finally in it. I think he's like three sessions in. And not only am I hugely proud of him for doing that, but it's also been so important for him to go, oh, my God, this is actually okay. You know, all this stuff that I didn't want to do, actually, I can do it and I am doing it. And the thing that I really want to get across and that I feel is really important to get across is that he did start his journey and he wasn't in any form of therapy and he was doing it very much himself. And I think that's probably where it's massively important we surround ourselves with really loving and nourishing people who are going to help that process. They can't validate it for you, but they can certainly help you on your way of going. It's okay. We're still here. We're not going anywhere. You know what? You've got this. I think that's so important, isn't it? I feel like if anyone brings a piece of their insides to me, my number one job is to hold that with compassion and validation, not fix. Because I think the moment you say, you know, oh, have you tried? You should. It's almost like, no, like for like a society, we've got so far to go to be able to do that. Because we all just want to, seeing someone else's pain is so confronting. I just want to fix it for them, right? And it's taken me, I mean, it was really doing lots of coach training that's helped me just be able to go, yeah, it's really hard. I felt that way. Yeah, it makes sense you'd feel that way. It's totally okay. Yeah, but that power of that. Yeah, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. There's nothing bigger. Same with our kids. Like, you know, when my kids come crying to me, everything in me wants to fix it. I'm sure she didn't mean it that way. Or like, right, I'm calling the teacher. It doesn't help. What helps is all your feelings are welcome because what you and I were talking about right at the start is that growing up, I didn't have that experience. I thought that there were good feelings and bad feelings and that I, my job was to basically try and chase the good feelings. And that is a recipe for a breakdown, which is what I had about 15 years ago and what you had last year. So I think there's just such a power in just hearing each other and allowing, just sitting and allowing to sit in the discomfort of that, especially with kids. Oh my God. Yeah. And I know that I was definitely guilty of raising my boys, you know, two years ago with the same idea of chasing the happiness and pushing away the bad because I didn't know any different. And I've had to reinvent the way that I parent, which has been actually really nourishing. There's been a process of having to forgive myself because obviously I'm riddled with the guilt of the fact that I messed up in the first place. But the nourishing way in which I parent them now is, it's okay. One of the boys, they did something. I don't know what it was. And, you know, we had to say, you know that that's not acceptable behaviour. And actually, what a consequence that has had. You know, all of the same stuff that we can't spiel out as any parent. And he started crying. And I went round to him and I kind of, like, pulled him in close. And I said, are you just feeling a little bit embarrassed right now? Are you feeling, you know, cross? What are you feeling? And he was, I just feel I'm really let myself down. And I went, and that's okay. I said, let it all out. I said, cry, scream. I said, let out all that frustration and just know that it's okay. And he cried and he was like, I was like, it's good. Come on, just let it all out. It's okay. It's okay. And then afterwards he calmed down because I was there supporting him through it. He calmed down. I said, and how are you feeling? And he said, I feel better. I said, you know what, Elliot, I'm an adult and I'm still making mistakes, mate. And that's okay. And you know what? If you weren't making mistakes, you wouldn't be growing. And there are times in our life when we have to hold our hand up and go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. 
and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly healthy and it's human. And I want to normalize that for the boys because I want them to know I'm an adult and I do not have it together. I have to apologize. You know, if I've lost my temper with them, I'm in a bad mood. I will turn around now and I go, you know what? Should have spoken to you like that, mate. I'm really sorry. I was in a bad mood, but that wasn't your fault. And I think that that has has had so much power for me because I'm kind of letting go of this idea that I have to be the perfect parent that chases the perfect moments, which FYI don't exist. <laughs> no. And what you did for him in that moment, like imagine if you'd have gone, don't cry. You're shunting that emotion. Exactly. Where does it go? I think this has been my massive, like what I've really, really, really learned is that that doesn't go anywhere. It goes in the body. And it's an adaptation. Okay, I can't show my feelings. And then you have to start compensating for not showing feelings, which creates stress in the body. It's just so fascinating, isn't it? Just rewiring and changing these generational patterns. And that's the thing is, and you do hear it. And I don't doubt for one second you hear it. Anxiety runs in my family. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. It's almost like a just a given. I'm going to be like this forever because my dad's like it or because my mum's like it or because well my nan had it and now my dad's got it and now I've got it it's almost like the bug that you catch and it's true it's true and it has so much power behind it but the thing that I've learned massively in, in reading and I've read so much I've listened to so much continue to read and listen to so much the reality behind it is it's because that cycle is not being broken so we are reliving out someone else's trauma but we are living out their ideas of what we can and can't do and their fears are being represented very much and within our own lives and it takes a lot to kind of stop and sit with it and go oh hang on a minute why do I think that but that isn't actually my life that's his life or that's her life so you can play out this idea that I've just got to be on antidepressants for the rest of my life and I am not qualified in any way shape or form to talk about medication I'm currently medicated I'm also understanding of the fact that I have lived under a massive ignorant cloud over my own trauma, having a substantial impact on my life. Should I have stayed on the antidepressants last year when they had such a horrific impact on me? No, I shouldn't have done. And I can say that honestly, that what I needed was therapy. And for me personally, going on a medication that literally sent me into crisis within 48 hours and not one medical professional sitting down and going, hang on a minute, this is extreme. And instead going, yeah, it's probably going to be like this for around five to six weeks. You've just got to knuckle down and deal with it. It blows my mind now that I allowed myself to kind of go through that, I guess. And I don't know. I wish I'd had more forethought. I'm still on antidepressants now. I was on sleeping medication. I was on a mood stabiliser as well. I was just basically thrown a load of medication, told to take it, and there was no other discussion of how else to heal myself. I was on a maximum dose of the sleeping medication every night, and I was told that I was only meant to take it sparingly, like three times a week, and I wasn't. I mean, I was maxing out every single day. And then coming up the prejudice and shame around my doctor's surgery, contacting me and going, why are you taking so many of these? For me to be like, because I still can't sleep. You know, I'm waking up and having multiple panic attacks a night. And where are you to turn around and tell me that I, I need something that I shouldn't be taking? Or it was just 
horrific and I think that we just live in a society that lacks so much knowledge around trauma and around how we live out things that we've experienced in completely different ways the way that we can be cautious of certain environments and we don't really understand why but in actual fact for me the way that I have parented has been through the sheer fear absolute unwavering fear that it will happen to my children and so I have been extremely overcautious of anybody looking after them. I've just lived in complete, like, I can't, I can't describe it. I've lived with it. So how do you know that it's really bad when you don't know any different? But I look back now and I just think, Jesus Christ, like, I'm terrified of someone snatching them. I'm terrified of someone taking them away from me. You know, this horrible like gut-wrenching feeling something terrible is going to happen to them because I'm a bad person a bad things happen to me so this will be the next bad thing that happens to me like it doesn't make any sense but I can also kind of link that back to a lot of things that I've experienced and then that emotional experience then has an impact on my kids and I don't want that for them I don't want them to be traumatized so horrifically by my trauma that it lives out in them. And, you know, I've said to Steve, I'm very happy, willing and open to the fact that they're going to need therapy at some point or another because of what they've witnessed through seeing me have, especially Elliot, my eldest, he's seen me receive more than one breakdown because he saw me have one with Toby. And I'm okay with the fact that they're going to need that. I want them to have that because above all else, I want them to have a nourishing relationship with me where they know that I will do anything to just support them through whatever moment they're going through. So being a parent is bloody hard and trying to survive your mental health and then care for them is impossible. I'm the same. I feel like if I leave my girls with one thing, it's that it's normal to struggle and it's also really normal to get help for that because no doubt, no doubt they have picked up things that I wouldn't want them to from me. You know, 100%, 100%. We talk so openly about therapy in my house. It's just like normal. Like, it's just like, of course you're going, you know, or I'll say, oh God, this really old pattern came up for me today where I used to do this thing and I did it. I just talk about it like I'm talking about, I don't know, the weather because I really want to normalize it because I think if it's normalized when they come up against some of those challenges within themselves, it's not going to feel like that shame that I experienced. That's one of the most important things to me that I pass on to them. I love that pure honesty that you have. And I think that it's such an important thing to give. And like you say, I think as parents, and I've learned to be more vulnerable around my boys, I used to believe that I needed to show them that I was strong. And to me, strength was they don't see me cry. They don't see me emotional. They don't see me struggle. I just glide. When in actual fact, that was probably one of the most unhelpful things I could have ever done to them because they didn't actually get to see what real life looked like. They got to see a very unhelpful, unattainable version of what adulthood looks like. And I want them to see, I mean, last year they did see that, that, you know, they saw mum not even going to do the school run with them and being desperate for mummy to just come back to normal. So I've kind of welcomed that idea and saying it's okay that mummy cries. And our youngest, Toby, he's so much more, I don't know, I guess in tune with other people's emotions. And I remember, bless his heart, last year I was in bed, I was crying. I was saying, Steve, I just can't do this anymore. I can't do it. And Toby came into the room and he said, Mummy, are you okay? So Mummy's just feeling a little bit sad. That's all. Mummy just needs us to give her a bit of extra love today. 
And he went off and he got one of his little teddy bears and he gave it to me. And he said, if you ever feel sad, mummy, just hold this and I'll be there. And obviously there were many times I was sad from then on. And sometimes I would go to bed and he had got out of his bed and I always had the teddy on my bedside table. He had got out of bed and he had put it, my, the teddy in my bed and he got back into his bed. And I know that that has had a, an impact on Toby. He's suffering with attachment anxiety with me. And I do understand why. I understand that seeing mummy like that was terrifying. So we're working through that in a very kind, calming way. Even down to the way he goes into school is very different to other children. And I'm very supportive of that process because I need him to understand. I know you thought mummy was just going to not come back one day, but she's still here and I will still be here and I will be here to pick you up from school. And we're getting there. It's been a real process. And there have been points where I've walked out of school and I have literally like the ugliest cry back to the car because I've just thought, God, you know, I've done this. I've done this to him. And he feels so terrified that I'm not going to come back for him. And instead of trying to reject this idea that it's my fault and that, oh, it's just one of those things, I've been able to accept the fact, no, this is something that happened. I couldn't help it. And now I'm going to be there to nourish that sort of scared little boy inside and the scared mummy's going to go and remind him that I'm always going to be there. I mean, imagine what you're showing him. You're showing him courage. You're showing him true strength, which of course is vulnerability. You're modeling to him healing. Like you have this insane knowledge that you seem to, it took me 15 years to get the knowledge on trauma that you've got in like a year that you're passing on and you'll just be embodying now. You know, that is an amazing, amazing gift. You know, I don't talk about it too publicly have respect, but I witnessed something similar in my own mum, but I was much, much, much older. And sometimes I think, gosh, if I'd have been younger and the recovery would have happened younger, how different things might have played out for me, you know? So I think what you're now showing is just incredible to those boys. I hope so. But, you know, in the process, also accepting the fact I'm doing it all wrong. But we got to let go of that idea as women. There's a shame element of that within society of how women are meant to bring up children. And this is another big thing I talk about in my book is the pressure on women versus the pressure on men and the vast difference between what we as women are expected to portray. You know, the fact that we are expected to look a certain way, we are expected to behave a certain way. And it's really frustrating not even down to how men see us, but also how other women see us and then how we judge other women and women against women. We're the worst. And I've really learned in this recent time of healing. And I, I really do think as well, you know, you mentioned about the fact that I've done it in a very intense period of time. I also think it's because for the first time in my entire life, I am surrounded by people who wholly and utterly hold space for me. They cherish me and they love me. It's not a big group. I don't need it to be a big group. And some of them I've met on social media, my friend, Victoria Eames, who I adore. And she has helped me just by validating me and that process. And I think that it's so massively important that when we surround ourselves with people, that they support us. And they love us and they understand the journey and they don't make you question where you are. They don't make you believe that you're not good enough. They don't make you believe that what you've done is, you know, embarrassing or pathetic or whatever. And I think that it has so much power behind finding your people. 
it's so so massively important because you know for me like this time last year I didn't have any tattoos I've said you know the usual slag tag at the bottom of my back I got that when I was a teenager which was a great idea at the time I had very long black hair I had no piercings on my face and last year I went I just went through this real like coming of age where I the teenage Laura that has been trapped and traumatized for the whole of my life went fuck it we're doing it Laura you want it go get it Laura you're gonna do it go do it and it's been so liberating because I've done things that I never thought I'd do and like the people that really know me they've gone it's weird and you know these some some of these people I've known nearly all of my life they've gone it's weird because you know what for the first time since I've ever known you you look like you now and yet you look so different to what you looked like before but this matches the Laura on the inside that we know you match now you kind of align with where you're meant to be it's like you shed that idea of the person you were meant to look like and the fear of stepping out of that and representing who you feel is gone and now you're just doing it and you're living you and you're being you and you're embracing it and I think that that's been wonderful like I can't explain to you how wonderful that's been and I'm hoping that sets an example for the boys too like always said walk to the beat of your own drum and I think that now more than ever I'm I'm kind of really embracing that yeah it's so inspiring to see and I think it's just such a testament of what you know trauma can do you're right it freezes us at that age it freezes us in this sort of like armor of who we think we should be okay well I think I should do this I think I should do this I think I should so I'm just going to do that and try and not put a foot wrong it's so confining isn't it and it's just beautiful to see and someone said that to me you'll know you're healing because your insides will start to match your outsides really they'll start to match up yeah so I'm kind of aligned now I'm aligning with the inside to the outside a little bit quirky a little bit different (laughs) yeah it's gorgeous to see and tell me about the thing that you really want you know because this podcast is all for mothers what do you want mothers to hear having been through what you've been through Above all else, and it will be the same thing time and time again, that they're not alone. In whatever it is they're feeling in that moment, whether it be complete and utter exhaustion, whether it be hopelessness, whether it be, I don't think I'm ever going to get through this. And there are many wonderful words that associate with being a mum, but there are also a lot of negative, aren't there? And I think that when we have the negative ones, it's a little bit like you said about pushing away the bad feeling. When we have that negative feeling around being a mother, we go oh, I shouldn't feel that way because um, social media has such a massive impact on that because we are told to believe and see the fact that you're meant to just always love it. We were designed to carry children and breastfeed them. We were designed to just nurture them and love them and love every moment of it. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't breastfeed. And I have had multiple breakdowns throughout the whole of my life, which has sometimes meant that I've also not been the most amazing mum to them because I've just not been able to even care for myself, let alone them. I want that to come across to any parent that's struggling or even not struggling, just dealing with the monotony of life as a mother. And it feels like Groundhog Day sometimes, especially when they wake up so early and you just think, Christ, I've been tired for like 14 years. You know, I just want to lay in. And I want to be able to wake up and not have, you know, a toy being smacked across my face or a child that's complaining about the fact they've wet themselves. Like, it doesn't take away the fact that you love your children to the ends of the earth. It doesn't take away how important and wonderful you are as a mother. But it's also validating the fact that you're finding it hard. And that 
validation of saying this is hard and I'm tired and I want a break is really important and you're entitled to it. You're allowed to feel it because you're not a robot. And actually being a mother is it's not natural in many respects. It's natural in that we can bear children and we can give birth to them. But the process in which we put ourselves, our mental health, our needs, our wants, our desires to the back burner as a human being is not natural at all. And women who are looking after themselves, maybe putting a lot of self-care in place, and I know I've gone through that process, are made to feel selfish either potentially through a partner or just by society, because I know that I used to feel really selfish for doing anything and I would over-justify it to Steve. And he'd be like, Laura, I don't care. Like in the nicest way I can say it, in the most nourishing way I can say it, go for the bloody massage. I don't need you to tell me the reasons why you believe you're entitled to it. I wouldn't even go and get my hair cut because I'd be like, I don't need to get it cut. It will just grow out. It can just stay long. It's fine. And now I'm like, no, I'm going to get my bloody hair cut. You know what? I'm going to get it cut and I'm going to get it shaved and I'm going to get it coloured. And I'm going to do all of it through a hairdresser and I'm not going to box dye it at home, you know? Uh, Granted, my hairdresser is a friend, so it's not as expensive as a salon. But my point is, is that, you know, I've been the box dyeing mum that had hair all the way down her back because she just never, ever got it cut because she just thought, well, I just don't need to. It's just, or cutting my own fringe, which by the way, would always be a disaster because I just never give myself that luxury or time to go, yeah, I deserve this. I'm going to look after myself today. And I think it's really important that it doesn't necessarily have to cost money. It can just be a case of, I'm going to go for a walk. Kids are in school, kids are in nursery and you're going, the house is a mess, but I need me time. Well, go and get it. No one is ever going to give you that permission. They're never going to tell you to go and do it. You have to find all the reasons why you deserve it. Absolutely. And I think our children learn by watching us. And if they're like, oh, okay, so my mum obviously doesn't feel worthy to do these things. Or maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not worthy. And it's like a double win when we heal, when we get into therapy, when we do stuff, because they're learning, oh, okay. I can do all of that too. And it makes us feel good. It's like, it's such a double win. But I think like you say, so many of us are battling how we feel about our worth to be able to even access those things, to be able to think I am deserving of this. And I think, you know, another thing for anyone who's got anything in their childhood, a little known thing that I just wish everyone knew is that when your children hit that age, it will trigger it all in you. And I just wish that everyone knew that because I think that would just make things so much clearer for people wouldn't it and that's another thing that I've kind of learned in the process of me that when both of my children roughly hit the age I was when I was sexually abused and although that was coincidental with the fact that I had another child and then lockdown happened I also had a breakdown at both points with my children and I can't pinpoint I can't confirm for sure but there is strong evidence to show the fact that that is heavily linked with my mental health and a mental health that hadn't been dealt with. So it's really important to acknowledge that as well. You know, Philippa Perry is absolutely brilliant on this. And so many other, Mark Willen is another brilliant doctor who talks about this, that that is what happens. That is what happens. Yeah, it's just that we don't really talk about it or it's not known that if we've got anything, it will come up when our children are that age. Yeah, it's mind blowing to me when I started to learn that because I saw it as an opportunity. Like, ah, okay, I hard as it is like you've done I can heal yeah I think that's the thing that I would hope anyone would take from this is you can and you will get through this 
and you deserve to get through this and you deserve to be loved and love yourself above all else actually above anything else you deserve to love yourself that's more important than anything else Mm, so beautiful and I always ask the same question at the end which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world what would that one gift be and why it would be as simple as it is a day off a day off from the fear the shame the expectation and the reality a day off to just what do you want to do no it's not what no it's not what, what the kids want to do it's not what your mum wants to do it's not what your husband wants to do what do you want to do what would you love to do today? That would be my thing. Because I think that if we had that one day every so often where we went, what am I going to do for me? We would be across the board, not only for ourselves, but for everyone else around us, happier. Because we're allowed, we're entitled, we're completely okay with needing me time and looking after ourselves. It's massively important and hugely rewarding. Beautiful. Thank you. And thank you for today. Oh, it's been lush. I've absolutely loved it. And I I would really encourage everyone to go and check the book out. When's it out? The 21st of July. So in a couple of weeks. I've read it cover to cover. It's incredible. There's so much in there around shame and women and trauma. It's just brilliant. So if anyone's resonated, I would really encourage them to go and pre-order a copy now. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for having me. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on.